0: this is uh Pichke theory 1 unit 6 part 12 um, hemorrhage control so a couple of things have changed just in uh, recent years the, the biggest change really in hemorrhage control has been the introduction of uh, two things one uh, tourniquets which we've always used but uh, there's been a new emphasis on use of tourniquets for exsanguinating hemorrhaging and even putting tourniquets on maybe a, a little sooner than we have in the past um, and um, wound packing with hemostatic dressings Uh, this uh, you know when I grew up we were told uh, not to put tourniquets on except as a last resort but what we learned from the um, conflicts in Iran and Afghanistan is that uh, tourniquets um, don't cause the sort of muscle damage hour after hour that we once thought Um, the the thought was that you lose 25% of muscle mass every, every hour that tourniquet's on, but that's not the case. And you and I frankly rarely will, will be on a call where we apply tourniquet and um, uh, it's on for longer than uh, an hour between the time we apply it and the time they go into surgery. Um, the third thing is pelvic binding, and I know you've covered this in the lab, right? Yeah, I can't remember if I have a slide on pelvic binding in here, but um, the pelvic binders are uh, really expensive uh, but probably worth the expense for the few times that we put them on and I'm pretty sure they're reusable, if I'm not mistaken. The only difficulty is you put a pelvic binder on, um, like a commercial pelvic binder, you, you're not gonna take it off when you transfer them over to the stretcher in the emergency department. They're gonna stay on probably till the patient goes to the OR. So it could be a couple of days before that pelvic binder reappears in the ER department and then you know it's a question of, is it properly labeled? So um, the um, operations people know where to pick it up and that it's actually there and can it be properly cleaned and so on and so forth. So so the one thing that's changed um, in, in the primary survey for hemorrhage has been this XABCDE. X stands for uh, tourniquet for Exsanguinating hemorrhage. So um, the XABCDE X-A-B-C would, ap- would apply to trauma. This is not in your slide, so just add that if you're freaking out there, those <laughs> of you who are OCD on the slide thing. So. So just add that to your notes. It's like, Rob, damn it. Um, yeah, the changes I made to the slides are really subtle. I'll tell you what they are when I hit on them and that's one of them, the X, A, B, C, D. So, so um, basically what that means is that if you see a patient um, and you see like blood gushing out of a leg or an arm, you uh, just go straight to the hemorrhage and apply a tourniquet. Um, we're gonna assume that airway and breathing is either okay or it's not the first priority because if they're going to exsanguinate, you know, we'll we'll deal with the airway. But he- here's the thing. In real life, not as opposed to scenario world, um, when you or your partner goes to the exsanguinating wound with a tourniquet, the other partner is going to be going to the airway and doing other things, right? So things are happening simultaneously. The exception to that rule would be something like, you remember the Boston bombing that happened? Um, Medics were kind of on their own, right? They were triaging and applying tourniquets sort of as they went. And, um, you know, it was uh, things were not getting done the way they might normally be done. So you're kind of on your own. You're sort of Controlling the hemorrhage while looking at the airway or managing the airway after you get the the hemorrhage under control. So, (coughs) um, in terms of uh, gross bleed checks, barring any exsanguinating hemorrhage, we do a quick visual head to toe and a quick assessment. Um, Just be careful about picking up bad habits in the lab. You know, bad habits in the lab would be gross bleed check. Let's just kind of (coughs) rant, 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 rant. How do you do your gross bleed checks? Do you do it that way or do you do it rant and then rant? Or wah, <laughs> How do you do it? The first one, the went yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you're doing wah, uh, you've heard of mindfulness. Mindfulness means went look, wah, look, wah, look, whey, look. <laughs> uh, because if you're just doing mindless kind of wah, and then you get to the toe and you've got blood in your gloves, you're going, I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> now I've got to start all over again. Or your best bet is just flip them over and I could say we uh, uh, when I worked at Air animals we flew out to um, an outlying hospital and we had a guy it's kind of a funny story two caretakers working in a school on the weekend uh, cleaning up the place I guess and they got into a fight and uh, one of them was stabbed multiple times and he had stab wounds to his chest and his abdomen and the hospital put chest tubes in and I said what about stab wounds to his back and, and um, uh, one of the staff said no there's no injury to the back and the other one said i'm not sure we checked the back so i r- my partner and i rolled him over and he had about 18 stab wounds on his back so you know uh, now in some ways it didn't make a difference because there wasn't a lot of blood coming out of them and he had two chest tubes in place to make sure that he didn't develop potential pneumothorax in place anyway but how bad does it look on me when I fly to the trauma center and I give report and I say no injuries to his back and they flip them over and they see 18 stab wounds say, you know, they're not thinking about the outlying hospital, they're thinking about the stupid flight paramedic. Um, so, you know, uh, but so you got to do a head to toe inspection. Um, you imagine how bad can an argument be between two caretakers that, that get into a knife fight and caretakers in a knife fight? It's just so weird. Anyway. It's funny the calls that stick with you, eh? Did did, uh, did you hear about uh, one of the second year students who had a, a patient, it was a child who had a, um, a Cheerio stuck in his nose? And dad panicked and called 911? Did you hear about that, yeah? <laughs> and I th- it was either the student or the medic just got the kid to take a deep breath and block one nostril and blow it out, and the kid was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that definitely ranks amongst the most stupid (laughs) 911 calls but what i love about that call is that 30 years later you still remember that call like you just never forget it right it's just such a great (laughs) it's just such a great you know at the dinner table over christmas hanukkah thing to talk about what a great call love that um so we do a rapid head-to-toe uh, assessment, a rapid trauma survey, we do a visual inspection, slide the hands, blah, 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 search for uh, internal bleeding, right? So we're looking for uh, the compartments of the body where you could lose uh, your total blood volume, chest, abdomen, pelvis. Those are the three main areas, right? So um, uh, are there palpable rib fractures? Is the abdomen tender or uh, worse rigid or getting increasingly rigid and um, palpable word fractures abdominal tenderness means internal bleeding until proven otherwise and so even if the patient's vital signs are within normal range at that point, we treat it like there's internal hemorrhage, and we you know initiate transport early with these patients. And as a general rule with trauma patients, we try to spend no more than ten minutes on scene unless there's extrication, and we have to factor in extrication, um, and then uh, initiate transport. So um, any pelvic instability is an exsanguinating bleed until proven otherwise, and uh, fracture of long bones. Um, Usually self-limiting because of the uh, fibers connected tissue sheath that surrounds the muscle. Uh, you know the bleeding's within that sort of capsule and, and is limited like a femur fracture. Do you know how much blood you can lose from a femur fracture an adult typically? Uh, up to a liter usually, not usually more than much more than a liter. So it's somewhat limited. Uh, it's a serious injury obviously, but it's somewhat limited. And you know what uh, what dramatically reduces the hemorrhage from a femur fracture? What treatment? <coughs> <The> <coughs> manual traction? traction, yeah. Yeah, the traction. Yeah, because um, when you've got. Um, no hey, oh, there's chalk here. Look at that. There's like, holy snapping groundhogs. There's like five <laughs> pieces <laughs> of chalk. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've got this That's a femur, by the way um, and what happens is when the femur is broken, this becomes a sphere, and a sphere will hold more blood volume than a cylinder. so our objective in applying traction is to convert the sphere mm-hmm. to the cylinder to pull those bones apart from each other to reduce that to increase the stretch and reduce fear to cylinder and that helps control the bleeding and um, traction splints are remarkably great devices for reducing pain it's amazing (coughs) nobody likes getting them on you got to make sure that um, if you're putting it on a man, you move the testicles. If you're putting it on anyone, you've got to let them adjust it to where it feels fairly comfortable and it's not cutting off their femoral pulse or something. Um, I had a multi-system trauma patient in a hospital who was unresponsive and had a Thomas traction splint, which is a manual traction splint as opposed to the spring-loaded Sager that uh, we use now. And he had his testicle caught um, underneath the, the ring that there and so he had a necrotic testicle not good for the patient or good for your resume you know that kind of I think that'd be a slam-dunk lawsuit you know if you lost your testicle to a traction split um, good thing he was unresponsive anyway so hemorrhage let's talk about arterial so arterial is rapid profuse pulsating um, it's bright red in color um, Although, I'll be honest, you know, I've seen venous and arterial hemorrhages, and, uh, well, I'm partially colorblind, so I can't distinguish between the colors, uh, but one spurts and one flows. It's, that's probably the easiest way to remember it. One spurts and one flows? Yeah. So arterial spurts? Arterial spurts, yeah. I had a great little arterial spurt from my thumb. I can't remember which thumb it was. Oh, it's this thumb here. I've got a scar here. So uh, we used to, um, in the back of the ambulance, we used to have this metal frame that held the sharps container. And um, it was like four pieces, four square pieces, the, the box sharps container in the middle. And I jumped into the side of the ambulance and I tripped and I hand reached out and I got my thumb caught between the sharps container and the metal bracket and it sliced my thumb open. I had this really cool arterial spurt Coming out of my thumb, <laughs> I was honestly I was looking at it going, oh wow, that's unbelievable, you know, <laughs> and uh, spurts, uh, you know, they're not like the Monty Python spurts where you know <laughs> the arm gets lopped off and it's just a flesh wound. Uh, it's not like Monty Python where you get this uh, massive spurt of blood because in my experience, arterial spurts are usually like an artery's been disrupted and there's tissue flesh over top of it. So it's, it's more like a spurting spray. Uh, it Just depends on how open the wound is, right? I mean, it can be a Monty Python-ish like squirt, but oftentimes it's just like a spray, um, like my thumb. And like w- this guy, once we were, uh, we got a call at like three o'clock in the morning for a guy who'd been um, uh, involved in a fight and we're on our way to this apartment And on our way, in the distance, very eerily, there's this couple walking towards us in the middle of the road. And at first, my partner and I were both annoyed, thinking these are just two annoying people who are blocking our way as we're approaching with the lights flashing. You know, like, can you stupid people not see? We're in an ambulance and the lights are flashing out, like get on the sidewalk. And then when we got closer, uh, the guy started to look like the Joker with this massive smile. You know, makeup smile. And as we got closer still, I realized he'd been cut from here to here and cut right through uh, the cheek completely. And uh, he had an arterial spurt, which was just spraying on one side. Nothing on the other side, amazingly, because he cut through the arteries there, but the spurt, the s- sort of spray that was going off. And, um, yeah, how did you wrap that? Yeah yeah <laughs> so I basically just took a pressure dressing and um shoved it between the two layers of tissue in his cheek and uh, I'm trying to remember how else we secured it. I think we just held it in place um, until we got to the hospital. The other side seemed to be okay. We just put some dressing some four by four dressings on there, but uh, uh we just put some pressure the it was the upper part that was squirting, so we just put some I think it was the upper part, I can't remember. We just put a little bit of pressure on there and just sort of held it there until we got to the hospital. Because there's no, you know, you can't really wrap, cling around his head, you know, or around his neck to secure it. Some wounds are just awkward, right? You just have to MacGyver it um, somehow. But uh, venous bleeds can be very impressive too. I'll show you a video of one later, which is not nearly as good as the venous bleeds I've seen. But, uh, so, Venus tends to be a little darker, sort of, I don't even wa- know what maroon is, but darker red, anyway. And then uh, capillary, close, of course, <coughs> is a slow ooze, and uh, typically clots spontaneously. And most, uh, most big wounds that you're going to see, the bleeding will have stopped by the time you get there. And it's, uh, you know, people are freaking out when they see a lot of blood, right? And... Um, and it's a lot of blood for them uh, and then when you get there the bleeding's completely stopped but you still got to put dressings on them because they can start bleeding again at any time but also you got to remember that you want to try not to disturb the clots uh, too much so you just be cautious about how you put the dressing on you know don't spend 20 minutes examining the wound and thinking about it but <laughs> you know. um, so uh, serious injuries don't al- always bleed and I've seen um, amputations and near amputations where there was almost no blood at all because uh, your body has amazing responses to uh, to hemorrhage right like we get very intense vasoconstriction, constriction platelets running in clotting factors running in to sort of clot off the wound and, and some wounds if they're clean you know like a, um, you know forearm taken off with a skill saw will um, stop bleeding on its own fairly quickly and then, uh, have you talked about amputations and how to deal with the the limb? No. Okay, so so with the <coughs> with an amputated limb, you want you want to wrap it in uh, saline soaked gauze, get it into a plastic bag. Ideally, put some ice water between that bag and another bag. And sometimes we don't always k- paramedic services don't always carry the appropriate bag, so we'll ask people. You know, have you got a freezer bag or some other large bag, and uh, or we'll just. Um, wrap it with dressings and then wrap it with ice and then wrap that with a towel. So you're improvising sometimes quite often on a lot of these wounds, but the idea is to try to preserve that limb uh, so that it can be reattached. Now just how you, just for your own interest, um, upper limbs reattach, uh, the success rate of reattachment is much higher than lower limbs. <coughs> um, although we had a guy once who had his, uh, his foot taken off just above the ankle Uh, He was launching a boat. I don't know how this happened, but launching a boat and somehow um, a cable got wrapped around his leg and the boat took off and his leg went with it and uh, the first crew on the scene wrapped his foot and ankle uh, and did such a great job and we flew him to the trauma center and he had it reattached and the surgeon actually called us to say that this was Uh, amazing amazing work we did and they we saved his limb blah 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 and I wrote back and said well it wasn't actually us it was a crew on scene that really saved his limb we just transported them, gave him some (coughs) IV fluids you know because they'd done all the work and they did a beautiful job so we actually nominated them for an award and they got this really nice award for it which is cool so (coughs) anyway um, so we wrap limbs we wrap limbs we wrap fingers and sometimes those things are not salvageable. Like I said, a clean cut, like with a skill saw, a hemorrhage can be uh, minimal. Um, on the other hand, you know, half the arm taken off with a chainsaw might be a whole different story, right? Because uh, there'll be jagged edges and the vessels don't constrict well and that sort of thing. So it depends on how it's been hacked off. I don't know if you saw recently, there was a sword fight in Brampton. Did you read that in the news? Yeah, well, that's just, uh, that's exciting stuff you don't forget about, right, when you go to those calls. Uh, hopefully, you don't end up going into them uh, before police arrived on scene and they secured security. You know, because sometimes you get misinformation. you get a call for someone stabbed, and you'll just go in, assuming everything's been taken care of, and then you'll see 20, 20 guys uh, chopping each other up with machetes and other swords. So, uh, and these were full-length swords. There's actually a video of it. Uh, on um, on YouTube or on the news channels, so you can look that up. <coughs> you know, I don't know where it was. I only looked at the clip quickly, but um, what goes through your mind, you know, when it's like 7 o'clock at night and you're talking with your buddies and you say, why don't we go out for a walk with our swords? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's all gang stuff, right? But but um, yeah, bizarre makes for makes for an interesting life for you guys. It's cool. So hopefully you'll send me an email with you know messages about you know Rob. I went to a sword <laughs> fight tonight. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, hopefully it's not too traumatic on you. So uh, and how much people bleed will depend on um, uh, the location of the bleed and whether they're on anticoagulants. So some relatively minor bleeds like scalp wounds. Uh, uh, Scalp wounds rarely, you, you don't exsanguinate from scalp wounds unless you're a child, because uh, children have um, uh, low body surface area, and so the blood volume uh, is small, and they can lose their blood, entire blood volume quickly. Uh, or you're on anticoagulants, so antiplatelets or anticoagulants like rivaroxaban and some of the other anticoagulants, hemophilia, or your hemophiliac. I've only encountered, I think, a couple of hemophiliacs in my entire career, so it's not a... It's a fairly uncommon disorder, but they may may bleed excessively. So some examples of um, um, anticoagulants include warfarin, dabigatran, Xeralto. You've heard commercials about Xeralto. You know, patients who've had s- strokes and they're on, or heart valve replacements and they're on Zoralto now. I think there's a famous golfer and a, maybe a basketball player who were both on, some, a race car driver on Soralto. You guys... Maybe you don't see those commercials. You got to watch CNN because it's older people who watch CNN, and so the commercials reflect the demographics. So I like to watch uh, CNN and CBC in the morning before I come to the college, and so you see you catch all the Zeralto commercials and River Rocks about and the Eloquist. <coughs> those. So you get a patient who's traumatized. You know your focus is going to be stop the uh, stop the bleed. A B C D E and at some point you're gonna get to their meds. And if you don't recognize the medications, look them up, find out what they are. And a patient with a, uh, maybe a not-so-significant bleed may b- still be a candidate to go to straight to a trauma center, given the fact that they're on a, an anticoagulant. I'll give you an example. I had a guy who was in his 70s, um, he, was, he was driving a van, he was broadsided, his van rolled, he had a, uh, his chest was tender, but there was no bony crepitus, his belly was tender, um, and he had a possible femur fracture but hemodynamically these vital signs were all normal he was alert he was oriented but given his age and the fact that he was on I think the bigotran was one of them uh, we took him straight to a trauma center because the risk of exsanguination from internal injury for him is higher than you know the rest of us uh, von Willembrand 's disease is a, um, the most common hereditary bleeding disorder um, And most people require more immediate attention so in the average adults the average adult has about 70 mls per kilo so that's roughly five liters for a 70 kilogram person Um, 70% of that is in the venous circuit and hemorrhage is the most common form of shock in injured patients Some different types of bleeding, so abrasions, lacerations, avulsions, deglovings, puncture wounds, amputations. Um, Have you heard the term deglovings? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Savage Medics (laughs) has posted some very horrific photos. Savage Medics. I don't know if that's a good group to follow, but (laughs) it's pretty unprofessional stuff there. But yeah, it's sometimes good to see what those look like. And I've got some images here. So abrasions, Um, you know, uh, and the treatment is pretty basic. We just clean it, just make sure, don't clean wounds with alcohol swabs. That would be tantamount to torture and maybe even assault and battery. Like just clean it with, uh, you know, some saline and some four by four dressings and maybe regular soap and water, but not alcohol based. Imagine alcohol in a wound excruciating right so clean dress treat and release um, you know for things like that we we don't transport Uh, we always ask them do you want to go to the hospital and hope they say no Uh, but if they refuse we have to go through an assessment of capacity and we have to talk to them about alternative care should they you know discover an hour from now that they have pain that they didn't realize they had and blah 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 I have to go through it's a painful process no matter what uh, so lacerations, we irrigate with uh, normal saline or sterile water if it's dirty and not hemorrhaging. We estimate the size, dress the, dress the wound and we... Um, now, it's a good idea to know what the wound looks like before you get to the ER. So if someone else has dressed the wound before you get there, I, l- I usually leave those dressings alone. If they look good, why would I mess with it, right? Uh, so I just get whoever the first responder was or the bystander to just describe it for me. And when I get to the ER, I'll just describe it with a caveat that uh, there was a bystander on scene or a firefighter dressed the wound, and I didn't actually see the wound, but what I'm told is that it's a, a six-centimeter horizontal uh, laceration to the mid-thigh, just below the dressing here, and that there was minimal blood loss. So you want to know things like, you know, the size the location debris in the wound how much blood did they lose rough estimates Um, but you'll get wounds like this and they hardly bleed at all so um, but what you do see with uh, what are relatively superficial wounds it doesn't look superficial but fatty tissue gets exposed and i mean you know your forehead your forehead is probably the least fatty part of your body right there's like nothing there but you'd be amazed if you cut the forehead open, the fatty tissue just sort of balloons out, you know, um, or your cheeks or anywhere else. Uh, and in some places it's quite pronounced and it just looks reddish and sort of bubbly. Um, and um, unless the blood is really gushing out, you don't need to use a hemostatic a wound packing material. Just put a dressing on it and, and uh, just wrap it or tape it. <coughs> I like using tape personally Uh, but you can put pressure PRN you know this would be a deeper wound that would probably require some pressure dressings or a tourniquet alternatively so that's just that black gel is like old coagulated blood so um, this is uh, these are examples of avulsions this is an eyelid avulsion where there's a a part of the tissue that sort of peeled back And if looking at this thing this sort of stuff bothers you, don't worry. It's it's much easier when you're at the scene and you're assessing and treating. It doesn't phase you the way looking at a picture does. You know, when you sit back and look at a picture, it's kind of gross. Um, but um, there's an avulsed fingernail, um, so pretty straightforward treatment for uh, teeth. So we we avoid touching the roots. Uh, we handle the tooth by the crown only, and. Um, uh, When I say attempt re-implantation, if it's just a single tooth missing and you can put the tooth back in that space and have the patient hold it, like you don't need to hold it, right? We always try to empower the patient. If the patient can put a dressing on and hold it, we'll do that. If they can put a tooth back in and hold it, we'll do that. Um, If unable to implant, uh, milk is fairly good. If you can get some milk and put the tooth in in some milk, um, uh, maintains the viability for about three hours. And um, Uh, water is the least desirable Uh, normal saline would be the next option this is what a de-gloving looks like where the skin is torn and sort of peeled back it is kind of gross eh it looks like a glove yeah and I've only seen three or four of these de-glovings nasty I saw we saw um, I saw a scalp laceration which was uh, sort of a de-gloving I guess this this lady had lacerated her scalp and it was pulled all the way back to back here and uh, what had happened was, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was, I think she was on a snowmobile. There was this big event, uh, if I recall, in the winter. And her husband uh, sort of forced her to get on a snowmobile. She'd never been on one and didn't really go- want to go on one. And um, it's always a man's fault. Right? <laughs> um, <coughs> we're not the brightest of the species, so, uh, you know, Well, yeah, but men make more stupid choices. The reality is, epidemiologically, (laughs) men are at much higher risk of injury and death than women are. Uh, We're not not that bright. Uh, So if a man is giving you advice about taking risks, (laughs) don't take it. Just say, no, you go on the snowmobile, you know. Um, She went on the snowmobile. She went over this... um, bump in the snow and I guess it was a, a glass shield and she hit the shield with the front of her head no helmet oh. and it just peeled back her entire scalp oh. but what was amazing was how little bleeding there was because she really scalped it. Good. well no not because she really scalped it good <laughs> which she did but uh, <laughs> sometimes wounds bleed like crazy and sometimes they are shockingly blood-free flea- and that was the case for her so I wasn't sure how to deal with it because I'd never seen that kind of a really bad scalp wound before. So um, mm-hmm. I, I made sure there was no debris on the scalp and I basically just pulled it back and put some dressings in the front part and we took her to the hospital and the, the doc was, the uh, day later, We're just really grateful to me because it was a real challenge to try to repair this scalp laceration. Anyway. So that was the right thing to do with that? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) One of two ways, you know. Dressings there. It depends, right? If there was a lot of bleeding, I'd probably just leave the scalp where it was and put a lot of dressings there and pack it in and just hold it in place. Uh, um, But or just leave it as is. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I was just going to ask, like, kind of say it was like this guy. Would you try and push the skin back? Generally, no. No, Generally, no. No. one of the reasons why i pulled back the scalp too is because it was a big crowd of people and people were taking photos of her and some guy was posting it on facebook like photos of this scalped woman on facebook i was really ticked it's unbelievable what people were doing this and plus they were probably getting my ass and my bald spot <laughs> in those <laughs> pictures as well like for god's sakes let me take out my stuff now. i'm kidding um but seriously they were taking photos and uh uh, as we were leaving, I said to some guy, I said, can you tell that jerk-off not to uh, like to get rid of those photos? But apparently he posted them on social media. We found out later. Yeah. Is it more, would something like that be more common? Uh, so I saw one this past summer. Okay. It was out uh, of someone's foot, mm. but it was after a burn. So they had poured, I guess, dumped, like, boiling water on their foot. Yeah. Didn't do anything about it. And then they went into a into like a cold lake and oh. it ended up i guess they went down some like rock water slide and it just peeled off, peeled off. yeah sorry was her i don't really know i don't know <laughs> 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 I, I was just wondering if it's more common and because oh. the skin's already damaged from a burn like is it um well from burns from second degree burns they they blister and the blisters often uh break on their own and peel uh, but uh, we'll talk about burns later but as a, as a rule we don't de-roof them um, and uh, that's the term for taking the blisters off uh, but you just you use just wrap them in dressings like something like this I would just uh, put some sterile dressings around all that wounded area and just wrap it in cling and uh, probably put a little bit of dressing between the four fingers so they don't stick together from the blood or whatever uh, but uh, there's not a lot of lot to do for that kind of a wound other than just dress but I wouldn't peel the skin back normally and the scalp thing that was just it was a spur of the moment people were staring at it and screaming and taking photos and I just kind of examined it and then um, I said to the patient do you have any objection if I pull it back and uh, and then we'll put some dressings on and she said she said yes and so that's what I did um, There's no right or wrong way sometimes to deal with those odd injuries. So clean, dress, pressure, PRN. Um, There's another degloving type injury. Again, um, another one. This is uh, like a motorcycle road rash type injury where there's no skin really to... They would have to have skin transplanted for that. Puncture wounds, fairly straightforward. We just look for exit, we clean, we dress, pressure, PRN. Hemostatic dressings if there's significant hemorrhage for those Um, and tourniquets, so um, I'll give you my opinion my advice is you should buy your own tourniquet get a high-quality tourniquet and keep it with you at all times Um, The service you work with will have a tourniquet But I found like our tourniquet was in the trauma bag So one, you have to have the trauma bag with you, which you would usually have if you knew you were getting a trauma, but two, it's in a pouch. And I can never remember, is it on this pouch or is it on that pouch? And if I get someone's got an exsanguinating limb wound, I wanna be able to grab that tourniquet like right now. I don't wanna go, where's the trauma bag and is it at this end or that end? I just wanna be able to pull it out of my cargo pants. And you might not use a tourniquet more than once or twice in your entire career, but, uh, not a bad idea to keep uh, one in your cargo pants. I keep one in my car just in case. I should probably keep two, just in case. No personal recommendation. Yeah, the cat tourniquets, uh, and don't get the knockoffs because we bought—I uh, think we bought 15 knockoffs, and they all break. I don't know if you've seen them in the lab there, but um, yeah, they're not very good. What's a good of a tourniquet that breaks when someone's dying? Right, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're at the Boston bombing. You apply a tourniquet to someone's leg. You walk 15 feet to the next person, and you turn around and you see the blood spurting again because the tourniquet's broken. Yikes! That would not be good. So you can make makeshift tourniquets as well. You know, you can take something like a um, a triangular bandage and wrap it around a limb. Uh, make a knot. Put a stick in it or a, um, a pen light uh something big enough and then make a knot over top of that and then twist the stick until you get get it tight right i would usually put a pressure dressing um if yeah yeah i mean you still put dressings on the end of the limb anyway so and sometimes we use pressure points have you talked about pressure points in um, in the lab so pressure points is basically just a compression of the artery upstream uh, so, what that means is that, um, uh, let me, I've got some, okay, no, I, th- I think I've got some image of pressure points in a second. But let's talk about wound management first. We'll get to the pressure points. So, uh, minor wound management, you know, we, uh, we provide some reassurance, we irrigate if necessary, remove any obvious debris, dirt from the wound, position the patient, uh, <coughs> position of comfort, whatever that is, supine or sitting. Uh, direct pressure if needed with a sterile bandage elevate the bleeding area mm-hmm. if necessary you know what do they tell you in first aid uh, pressure rest elevate is that right rest, um, elevate, direct pressure. Yeah. elevate direct pressure yeah rest elevate direct pressure rest elevate direct pressure okay yeah Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, I would just do what you gotta do and do it in a timely fashion. Uh, The order is not really critical. And uh, I can tell you um, rarely have I raised a limb that was bleeding uh, or needed to. Um, So first aid is great, but it's a little robotic. And um, uh, if you need to raise the limb you need to raise the limb to help uh, control the bleed But most cases you don't need to raise the limb and I've had near amputations amputations where I didn't raise the limb because the bleeding was under control But just just be aware, you know, the first aid mnemonic is it's good. It's helpful, but um, In the real world you just kind of do what you got to do so uh, Obviously no direct pressure over an eye injury. That sounds like common sense, but If you buy a stroller for your kid, it actually gives you a warning sign that says, child should not be placed upside down (laughs) in the stroller. So I'm assuming those kinds of instructions would not be necessary for anyone in this class. (laughs) But, uh, But even really smart people do stupid things, right? Present company included here. So immobilized doesn't mean necessarily splint, but just you know keeping the limbs still. So major external hemorrhage, tourniquet or direct pressure with sterile dressing, reassure, position the patient, uh, rule out fracture or rule in fracture, elevate if, as needed, immobilize as needed, uh, maintain pressure until bleeding stops. If bleeding soaks through the material, we generally don't remove uh, a pressure dressing. We just apply a second one over top. Um, uh, what I like to do, if I've got a, if I've got a gaping wound, I like to put, like, a small dressing right into the wound and then wrap wrap that around so you've got pressure sort of on that dressing that's embedding itself deeper into that wound to control it. Sometimes I'll even take a sterile cling wrap and just stick it in there and then wrap it on the leg or whatever. So um, when it comes to first aid, you'll MacGyver a lot of things. Now, taking first aid courses is, is always a good thing um, uh, because teaching – Teaching first aid, first aid instructors, I find, are very robotic and very algorithmic about you must do this in this order, like red, whatever it is, right? Uh, And that's not at all a bad thing. Um, I took a two week first aid course in British Columbia and uh, there were things that were taught in there that were painfully wrong, but overall it was like a fantastic first aid course about splinting and you know, macgyver uh, MacGyvery dressings and things like that. I l- absolutely loved it. Uh, it was really good. And, um, you know, and as paramedics in the field, um, you might, uh, you know, I've seen paramedics who seem to think they're above first aid, you know, like, well, I'm a medical guy and I do medicine stuff. But first aid is fundamental, right? It's the fundamental stuff. And we should be, as paramedics, we should be good at the first aid. So although I sort of mock the whole, you know, you know, mnemonic towards controlling bleeding, it's not a bad thing at all, really. So, yeah. Sorry, uh, uh, two slides back there. It said, um, don't remove oh, pressure. I think so, through material, don't remove it. Um, doesn't it also say, though, in the BLS that- Is that know? here? Yeah, at the very bottom, the second bottom. Second bottom. It's very bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it oh, okay, material, yeah. Don't it. So in the BLS, it says to go through putting, applying your dressings, applying round rounded dressings, but if you need hemostatic dressing to uh, remove the dressings and then place that and then redo. Yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Yeah, if it's bleeding that much once you get to a second dressing, then, yeah, probably a good idea to put a hemostatic dressing or apply a tourniquet. Okay, so that would be the only scenario where we would remove dressings and then... You know what? But um, apply hemostatic first? The, the only scenario is you, you do whatever the you need to do, <laughs> right, <laughs> basically. So, yeah, you put a dressing on, doesn't stop. Put a second dressing on, doesn't stop. Yeah, go to hemostatic dressing or tourniquet or both. Um, so, but yeah. But you never start with a hemostatic. You always start with your... Nemostatic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's times when I would start with a hemostatic dressing. If I got a high-caliber gunshot wound to the leg, for example, and it's gone through and through, I'll put a, probably put a dressing, get my partner, put a dressing on one side, and I'll put a hemostatic dressing where the blood's gushing at. For sure go straight to hemostatic haemata- dressing and then put a pressure dressing on top of that um, so yeah and I- again you'll have to um, uh, freestyle it a little bit you know you have to make a, a a spot judgment as to what you think is the most appropriate way to address that wound to stop the bleeding just think my objective is to stop the bleeding whatever it takes to stop the bleeding so you know, the easiest thing to grab might be a pressure dressing to stick on there until you can grab the hemostatic dressing. And then you get the hemostatic dressing out of the packaging, get it ready to go, and then you peel the pressure dressing back and then start stuffing it in, right? Um, So so, uh, point compression, so pressure points is what I was talking about. So point compression is the proximal artery to the bleed may slow the bleeding sufficiently to get it under control with pressure dressings and bandages. Um, uh, we can hold compression points up to 20 minutes. Um, so um, if you've got bleeding in the hand, you just compress the radial and ulnar arteries, might be help and elevate the limb in that case. Uh, the forearm would be the brachial artery, upper arm would be the axillary, so here. right? Lower leg would be popliteal. It's hard to palpate the popliteal artery, I find. You that's something you want to practice and uh, upper leg would be femoral the groin area Um, so here's an example where there's a this guy you know I don't know if this is moulaged or it's real it's probably moulaged but um, that amount of blood um, from a forearm injury sorry my arm is itchy uh, probably worth putting a tourniquet on right you get that much bleeding alternatively you apply a pressure point so you include that brachial artery to get that bleeding under control. Mm -hmm. So associated signs and symptoms with hemorrhage include uh, patients are typically tachycardic, tachypneic, they're going to have a fight-or-flight response so they're going to be pale, cool, diaphoretic, Um, hypotension, hypotensive and our criteria for hypotension in adults is less than 90 systolic uh, and that's when we start doing fluid resuscitation with intravenous fluids late cap refill greater than two seconds, dizziness, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, restless confusion. Confusion and agitation is an early sign of shock, um, so that should be a warning sign to you. When their brain is hypoperfused, um, altered level of consciousness or awareness, weakness. Um, so I talked about tachycardia, so that's 100 uh, or greater in adults, over 120 in you know school age to puberty over 140 in preschoolers, uh, over 160 in infants. I won't test you on these numbers. Uh, you've got a reference to it in your ALS-PCS. Yeah. Um, is there like a black and white line of where hypovolemic shock is? Like if it's so many milliliters or? No. No, no I look at it this way. If they're, um, if they're hemorrhaging and they're tachycardic, they're hypovolemic. They're hypovolemic. Um, um, what's shock? Uh, by definition, it's widespread inadequate perfusion of tissues and inadequate removal of waste products. So, you know, you be the judge. They're tachycardic, they've got inter- altered mental status. In my books, they're in shock. Right. right? Are they compensating or decompensating? In my books, to keep it really simple, if their pressure is less than 90 or in kids less than two times the age plus 70, they're in decompensating shock. Right. Really simple. <laughs> Above that, they're still compensating. So No, hemorrhaging, tachycardia, um, hemorrhaging, tachycardia, you know, it's, it's the overall picture, right? Hemorrhaging, tachycardia, tachypnea, uh, pale cool diaphoretic, um, if they're um, altered mental status, they're definitely in shock. But shock is, is a really subjective um, perspective in the out of hospital setting. You know, so we're looking at a variety of things, how they appear, how their blood pressure is, all those sorts of things. No, What I was saying was that uh, if they're hypotensive, uh, they're decompensating. If they're normal-tensive, then they're probably still compensating. That's how I look at it. So less than 90, or in kids less than 2 times the age plus 70, they're definitely decompensating. Right? Um, but do we treat them more urgently than if they're compensating? No, we treat them with the same urgency, no matter what. So um, initially when people hemorrhage, um, the diastolic pressure um, typically changes before the systolic uh, due to catecholamine response. So we usually get some basal constriction and the diastolic goes up. And so as a consequence, the difference between systolic and diastolic diminishes. They call it the pulse pressure, right? Normal pulse pressure 120 on 80 is 40 millimeters of mercury. So you get a decrease in pulse pressure. It's an early sign of shock but it's a number and it's only one number in the big picture you know there's so many other factors we have to look at besides blood pressure Uh, but it's um, when you read about shock when you uh, discuss shock you know in other settings they'll talk about uh, decreasing pulse pressure and that's one of the signs of shock Um, i think of um, in really simple terms uh, i think of the blood pressure this way um, systolic is a reflection of blood volume diastolic is a reflection of vessel integrity so over time as you start to lose volume your systolic will start to drop initially your diastolic will increase because of vasoconstriction because of release of <coughs> adrenaline and noradrenaline um, and and then eventually your systolic will start to drop because uh, it's a reflection of volume so decrease in pulse pressure I <coughs> uh, already talked about this Later systolic starts to fall uh, and the BP can be misleading. Right? So uh, a pressure 110 um, uh, may be good in a young, healthy adult uh, but may be seriously hypotensive in an older person who's got high blood pressure, maybe undiagnosed high blood pressure. Right? And then um, you know, level of awareness, capillary refill are important to assess for signs of inadequate uh, or adequate perfusion. You know, when someone's restless or confused uh, and you know they're hemorrhaging or possibly bleeding internally, that's an early warning, an early sign of shock. Uh, So mental status. Altered or diminished LOA in the absence of a head injury or other neurological insults, suggestive poor cerebral perfusion. Unconscious due to shock takes a lot of blood loss. If I get an unconscious patient who's a trauma patient, I usually think head injury plus bleeding, right? Uh, That takes a loss of uh, at least two liters, like at least 40% of their blood volume to lose consciousness. That's a lot of blood loss. Now that happens, you know, those patients are exsanguinating. So we get catecholamine release. um, You know, fit adults will vasoconstrict pretty intensively, maintain a normal, systolic blood pressure, even after 30% blood volume loss, uh, systolic will gradually drop, continue blood loss. Children are kind of the exception of the rule. Children you really got to watch out for, because children will hold their blood pressure and their pulse for a long time, and then very suddenly crash on you. So how do you know a kid is deteriorating? You know from the other things, like they've got a tender belly, right? Um, where's your spleen? That's right. yep. Yeah. Uh, Jason Taylor got it right. Left upper quadrant. That's your spleen. You lose a lot of blood from your spleen. Your spleen, your liver in kids is more exposed. It's more exposed. Like your ribs haven't grown to the point where they protect them. And adults, the liver and the spleen are a little better protected. But kids uh, with trauma sometimes bleed or exsanguinate mm. from injury to the spleen or the liver. Probably more frequently the spleen. So. So even though the kid's got a decent heart rate and blood pressure, maybe they're tachycardic and their blood pressure is greater than two times the age plus 70, or t- uh, sorry, um, yeah, two times the age plus 70, that's what it is, right? Um, if they've got a tender belly, no matter where it is, but particularly the left upper quadrant, they're bleeding inter- internally until proven otherwise. So we don't want to mess with those kids. We want to get them a hospital ASAP. So first principles: any patient who's cool to touch, tachycardic, is in shock until proven otherwise. Hypotension likely signifies the set of decompensatory shock. Um, who has a blunted response? Uh, who are the patients who are not going to present typically? Well, those are typically. Um, you know, patients who may not exhibit the same vital signs from blood loss. Like a patient who's on a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker, they won't mount a tachycardia. I'm on a beta blocker. My heart rate hovers between 50 and 56 typically. If I lose a lot of blood, I could lose 30% of my blood volume. My heart rate's probably not gonna get above 90, right? So you might think, oh, Rob's fine. Just leave him here. We'll go look after the other people. I'll be saying, wait, I was your teacher. I'm exsanguinating. <laughs> I'm on blood thinners and beta blockers. Come on. Um, so, yeah, some patients may not exhibit that sympathetic response. They may not even be all that sweaty or all that pale because they're, on, they're beta blocked. And so, uh, you've got to watch for those, right? And look for other signs. And so, sometimes the signs are subtle, more subtle. And just based on the fact that they've got a tender chest or they've got a tender abdomen, or maybe their pelvis is stable, you know, when you palpate it, but it's tender, um, you know, you wonder about potential for exsanguinating injuries. Um, so, um, patients who have comorbidities are at higher risk. I'm just looking at the time here. So uh, patients with heart disease, ischemic or valvular disease, may become hypotensive with relatively little blood loss. Uh, we had a guy once, he was an um, interesting guy. He was in his 70s. And uh, I don't think I need to write anything down. He was in a car crash. He was unbelted. We know he's unbelted because the crew found him on the floor of the front seat of the car. And he was the driver of the car. Uh, so he must have gotten tossed around a bit and ended up on the floor. and um, he, he was in an atrial fibrillation. Um, so that's a rhythm where um, the atria, because of multiple ectopic foci, the atria are just a quivering mass. They don't actually contract. And um, um, his heart rate looked like this, very irregular, irregularly irregular. Right? and uh, he'd had a previous heart attack, he was a copd so he had s- lots of comorbidities. And what happened with him is when his heart rate climbed above about 120, his blood pressure plummeted, dropped down to the 70s, systolic. <coughs> when his heart rate came down below 100, his blood pressure came back up. So you've covered cardiovascular stuff with Sean, right? You remember Starling's Law? the greater the myocardium stretch, the greater the force of contractility within certain physiological limits. Well, a guy who's had a heart attack and has heart disease and has COPD has real significant limits to his cardiac output. So his heart rate reaches a certain point and his heart just craps out, right? It'd be like, imagine you know, some old, old guy trying to run across a parking lot and reaches about 40 meters and just <coughs> goes down. Right, your heart does the same thing. If it's if you've got a sick, disease heart, it just craps out. It just reaches a point where it fails, and their blood pressure bottoms out. And then, yeah, you know, somehow you got to g- get that heart rate under control. So, <coughs> um, how people respond to hemorrhage depends a great deal on uh, comorbidities. Patients on anticoagulants. Um, Or with clot disorders, that should be or not of, Uh, may bleed excessively, even from relatively minor injuries. Um, This uh, increases their CTAS, right? Let me just have a look and see how many slides are left here. We are almost. Do you want to go to the end of this before we take a break? Yeah. You're okay with that? Okay. It's a bit of a long presentation, but might as well. So scalp injuries, as I mentioned earlier, generally not life-threatening unless, um, you know, there's a long extrication time, and there's adults, kids. It's really difficult to dress head wounds, really difficult. There are some good uh, YouTube videos. I would recommend watching them. There's this um, head wrapping technique. It's a uh, little turbanish-like, um, and I remember watching it. I was so impressed with it, I never really got the chance to try it. So uh, take a look and see if you can find it. But, um, when you put dressings around head wounds, like let's say you've got a, a wound at the top of your head and you put a dressing on it, basically you have to put, take some cling, bring it down, somehow wrap it around here, right, and try to secure it, ideally around the base of the occiput so you've got a little bit of um, something holding it there. But those things, you know, um, eventually okay. you just go like this. <laughs> they come up, right, and they, they pop off. Um, so they're a bit of a nightmare especially if you have them lying supine on a board or on a scoop or something um, there's uh, it's not easy to dress those kinds of wounds so if you're able to perform some sort of voodoo magic with dressings on scalp wounds you'll be like the only paramedic in canada who's capable of controlling a head wound which would be pretty spectacular and you could create your own youtube channel and make you know hundreds of thousands of dollars every year with your headdressing techniques. (coughs) Well, maybe enough money to buy a coffee once a month or something anyway. Um, Exceptions would be uncontrolled, uh, chest exsanguination, uh, abdominal exsanguination, pelvis, we talked about this, so those are the, uh, the pelvis is extremely vascular and uh, so pelvic injuries can result in exsanguination. Um, Thighs hold up to about a liter. So general management, uh, we already talked about this, control the bleeding, SPO2, ECG, O2. Just remember that um, someone who's hemorrhaging may have it, is likely gonna have a normal SAT. They're gonna be satting at 100% or 98%, but their oxygen carrying capacity is diminished. So if they're, if they're bleeding and they're short of breath, they might benefit from oxygen because whatever oxygen doesn't get bound to hemoglobin gets dissolved in blood plasma. Right? So there's no real evidence around whether O2 is a benefit to those patients, but um, uh, and I don't generally give them O2, but uh, I might, if they're short of breath. Uh, other treatments, PRN transport, IV access on route, um, and fluid resuscitation. And anyone who's serious hemorrhage is gonna be CTAS one or two. So it just depends. If they've, if they've got, if they're hemorrhaging and they, they've got altered mental status, i make them a CTAS one. If they're hemorrhaging, but they don't have altered mental status, probably CTAS two. If I got a tourniquet on, automatic CTAS-1 so internal hemorrhage <coughs> uh, for the abdomen you, do you know how to do rebound tenderness you practiced that in the lab yeah you know how to do that okay good so check for rebound tenderness uh, swollen abdomen signs of shock we talked about um, external bleeding through natural openings um, maybe blood in the stool blood in the urine and um Uh, Vaginal bleeding, kind of the usual. Um, The the worst vaginal bleeding I've seen are the the patients who are post-abortion. So, you know, a day, two days, a week after having an abortion, there's still fetal tissue there and they hemorrhage. Um, Blood with vomit, you know, bright red would suggest upper GI bleed. Um, Those are all sort of medical causes of hemorrhage esophageal varices are interesting so uh, we see esophageal varices most often in have you talked about esophageal varices in any other classes so you know what varicose veins are right Um, so you can get uh, uh, where we see most often esophageal varices is in alcoholics they have um, uh, you know they've got a lot of liver damage and they've got uh, what they call portal hypertension and so um, blood backs up from the liver into uh, the neck, and you get these distended, fragile veins around the esophagus, and um, a, a little pinhole of a of a laceration into a esophageal varices can cause exsanguination, like a slower exsanguination, right? They bleed into their stomach, and if they bleed into their stomach, either from esophageal varices or even epistaxis, they tend to projectile vomit, it's really nasty. The blood is very irritating to the stomach, and um, um, alcoholics um, bleed a lot because uh, alcohol uh, alcoholism um, diminishes, impairs their ability to clot blood, so they may have an esophageal bleed and they, they just bleed a lot, and um, something as simple as swallowing a piece of toast can, lacerate a varicose vein in the esophagus, and they can bleed like crazy, right? So there's a lot of blood coming out their mouth, and you're trying to determine if it's coming from their lungs or their GI, but it's rare from the lungs, more often from the esophagus or stomach, and uh, there's not really anything you and I can do except get them to the hospital quickly. In the hospital, what they do is they put a Blakemore tube in, which is kind of an oral gastric tube with a balloon on it, so they they get them to swallow, swallow this thing, and it's got a balloon on it, long balloon, and they affla- inflate it in the esophagus to put pressure on the esophagus to stop the bleeding. And then usually transport them to a surgical center like that. So, um, I saw at uh, the coroner's office, I saw an autopsy on a guy who died from um, esophageal varices, and uh, when they dissected the esophagus, uh, they found a little pinhole. It was like a tiny little hole in his esophagus, and he just bled overnight uh, through the night and In the morning, the nurses uh discovered that he'd exsanguinated and uh it wasn 't much of a it was like the hole in his esophagus was can 't even describe it it 's like the head of a pin it was so small the head of a pen maybe a little bit bigger, but it was tiny. <coughs> Okay, we already talked about that. Um, Yeah, so embedded objects, you know what to do with those, right? Leave them in. If you're going to ask me those what if scenarios, like what if it's in the center of his chest and you've got to do chest compressions, God help you. That's all I have to say. Like, we're supposed to leave it in, but there's no real good answer for a question, like a, a scenario like that right um, if you do chest compression it's probably going to fall out so just be prepared for that and um, I don't it might just cut more it it might be in but not touching the myocardium and then you're doing compressions and it's basically stabbing the heart <laughs> like e eh, e eh, e eh, e eh, e eh, with every chest compressions uh, so uh, yeah nobody had the courage to address that in the BLS standards can't blame them I don't know what the hell to do with that uh, yeah I don't know I don't know I don't know what I would do so good luck <laughs> That's all I have to say like seriously I mean it good luck like I don't know the right answer I don't know that there is a right answer and I, th- I think very few people will criticize you for whatever you do right you've been taught to leave it embedded no one's going to criticize you for that um, you take it out and you have good clinical rationale, I don't know. I don't honestly don't know. but the chances of getting a guy with a knife in his sternum who's in cardiac arrest where you have to do CPR are so remote uh, that if you get that call I would go out and buy a lottery ticket right after you know, and stay out of lightning. Uh, stay away from lightning. So, tourniquets, uh, I don't think we need to talk about that. We talked about a makeshift tourniquet, that's sort of what it looks like, pretty straightforward. Um, these cat tourniquets are great. You're supposed to mark down the time that you applied the tourniquet, right? So, hospitals know, surgeons know. Let me show you um, a junctional arterial bleed. Do you know what that is? That means in a like a joint where it's really hard, you can't get a tourniquet in here, right? There are junctional, like the tactical medicine, uh, people have these junctional tourniquets, a special device that, I can't even describe it, but um, here's the junctional arterial hemorrhage. Let me just pause the video recording here. We had another guy who, um, he had a varicose bleed in his, um, the bottom of his foot, inside of his foot, just right near the heel. (coughs) And he had, uh, older guy, and he had um, slippers on And socks on and house coat and pajamas on and he came to the back door God bless him came to the back door and we got him straight onto the stretcher and his foot was just completely soaked with blood and the same sort of thing so I've got gloves on and I said I'm just gonna take your socks off so I take my scissors and I cut his socks off and it just uh, spurt sort of straight out Uh, it was beautiful stream and um, I just put my thumb on it and stopped it. And uh, I said to my partner, let's clean up this foot and, and then we'll put a dressing on it. So I just kept my thumb on it. It was just like a little pinhole and I just kept my thumb on it. And the temptation to take my thumb off and just watch it go again <laughs> was almost overwhelming. But my partner went into his house to grab his keys to lock the door for him and he said it looked like a scene for a homicide there was just blood everywhere yeah like those blood trail of blood footsteps from the kitchen to the bedroom everywhere he walked around a little bit and saw the place and uh so (laughs) we said to him like um do you have any relatives who might be coming to the house at any point he said well my uh somebody's usually comes over to see me in the evenings i said Let's call that person and just let them know that your house looks like the scene from a homicide, and uh, so they're not freaked out, or maybe they just don't come today. And he said, "No, no, she'll come. she'll probably clean up." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he called her. we're in the back of the house. He's on the phone with her, <coughs> a lady probably his own age, maybe a girlfriend, I don't know. and he says, um, uh, I've got a problem with my varicose vein, it's, it's bleeding, I'm going to the hospital. And um, and um, I, I know you're planning on coming over, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to be there, I'm going to be in the hospital. And, um, and besides, my house is a bit of a mess. And uh, and I could hear her voice, you know, through the phone saying, well, well I'll come see you at the hospital. He said, no, I'll, I'll be okay, just, you know, check on me later or I'll call you later. And she said, Well, I'll go to the house and clean it. And he said, Well, there's there's a little bit of blood in the house. And I'm looking at him like <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, it's like half your blood volumes, you know, on the walls. And it was like he had it on his hands and he'd like yeah. grabbing things to catch his balance. So there's like hand marks, bloods everywhere. I didn't actually go in the house, my partner did, so but he's telling me like there's blood everywhere. Um, So let me show you a varicose vein now this one's they don't really they just they just remove the dressing And so you just see it a stream of blood a very short distance, which is really disappointing I have to try and find a better video. Maybe savage paramedics has something (coughs) Okay, let's skip all that crap not sure where that is let's just see I think they're freezing the area I'm not sure but let's I don't know where that is like I the B. The B. no I think we need to go back a bit let's just see Uh, well, let's just put it this way: you do what you got to do to stop the Yep. So that's it for the uh, the videos. Any questions about hemorrhage control? I had a guy who um, was doing some agricultural work, and he he uh, cut off his finger. So. We uh, wrapped his hand, took his finger, did all the, you know, icy stuff with the finger, brought him to the hospital, and uh, they couldn't reattach it. They took him to another hospital. The very next day, he sees my partner and me um, parked across from Tim Hortons, and he comes over and catches us in line and uh, buys us a coffee. He so, said, yeah, I lost my finger. They couldn't reattach it. And, you know, it's like looking at this stump, and he's all happy, and he bought us coffee for it. So we thought lost a lot more. Well, no, I don't think he would have lost any more. But he was just one of those really nice, grateful guys who, despite losing his finger, was still, you know, appreciative that we—I uh, don't know—did what we did. But